Well, good morning to you, and good morning to those who may be watching, watching via the internet. We are glad to have an extended congregation today, and trust that our study in the Word of God would be a blessing to everyone. Several years ago, I read an article that was based on an interview with Agatha von Trapp. She was the eldest daughter in the family, the famous Austrian family, that the uh, wonderful hit film, The Sound of Music, was based on. By the way, that was 50 years ago that that film was produced, back in 1965. But uh, Agatha von Trapp died a few years ago, aged 97, in a Baltimore suburb under hospice care, and gave this interview just before she passed away. The interviewer had asked her about the play. First of all, it was a hit musical, Rodgers and Hammerstein, 1959, and then the film with Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer in 65. She was asked, what did you think about The Sound of Music? And she said, when I saw it, I cried. <laughs> she said, if it had been about any other family, I would have thought it was great. But the way they portrayed my family, she said, they got it wrong. The interviewer was very interested and said, well, tell me, what were some of the things that were wrong in the film? She said, well, first of all, my father was very loving, and the film made him way too strict. He was nothing like that guy in the film. Secondly, I never had a boyfriend, let alone a telegram-carrying Nazi. <laughs> she said, Maria was our tutor, not our governess. The eldest Von Trapp child was a boy, not a girl. She was the oldest girl, but not the oldest child in the family. She said, when Maria came to our family, we are already well-versed in music. Of course, the film has Maria teaching them, but uh, this is what I, I think is most amazing. She said, and we didn't escape from the Nazis by crossing the Austrian Alps. We walked across the street and took a train. <laughs> now, somehow that just doesn't make the same type of music, you know, uh, the same type of impact. But as I thought about that interview, I thought how disheartening it is when some of the significant features of a well-beloved story are proved to be false. It just kind of takes the air out of your balloon sometimes. Well, I want you to know that the way that God is portrayed in many, many places, we've got it all wrong. <laughs> For instance, in some places, God is portrayed as someone who hates sinners and loves damnation. He's long on grace, or long on law, but short on grace. The image of God has been forged over the centuries and passed down from religion to religion until what we believe to be true has no connection to the truth. And the way God is portrayed is too strict instead of very loving. We seem to get it all wrong. There's a wonderful book written by A.W. Tozer in the early 1960s called The Knowledge of the Holy. I would encourage you to get that and to read it. The very first chapter is We Must Think Rightly About God. Let me give you just a few excerpts from that wonderful chapter he says, without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing 
about us. We tend, by some secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. Thus, mistaken views of God create misguided lives, for wrong thinking produces wrong living. Tozer went on to say, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect or ignoble thoughts regarding God. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so decadent as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, rational, worshiping creatures. This low view of God is often entertained almost universally among those who are religious. Those who know not God call upon him other than he is and therefore worship not the true God, but a creature that they have fabricated. For a God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart is always deformed. Remember the indictment from the psalmist, Psalm 50, verse 21, you thought that I was altogether like you, and you are so wrong. So man has these ideas of God and then projects them upon the real God. And it's idolatry. And we worship a God who doesn't exist, one made in our own fancy. So Tozer says, this idea of God needs to correspond as closely to the truth as it can. This is immensely important. Our creedal statements are of little consequence compared with our actual thoughts of God. The only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to trace them to the cause. And since the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles, a rediscovery of the truth about God, the majesty about God, will go a long way toward curing them. If we would bring back spiritual power, vitality, and life to our own Christian experience, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. And I say amen. Maybe you have wrong views of God that have been passed down to you, even from good, well-intending people, but when you put them together, the story about God you have and his character is just wrong. You need to go to a place where you can begin to think rightly about God, and there's only one place, and it's here in the Holy Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, the books of the Old Testament and New Testament. They tell us who God is. It's helpful to hear what the church thinks about God over the centuries because very good people have studied and they give us wonderful uh, uh, fruit. The fruit of their study is, is very wonderful for us. It's helpful, but don't take that as true until it's first examined with this book. Tozer's right on. We often get it wrong. So where can we go to get the right impression, the right understanding, the right facts about the character and ways of God? Not only to the scriptures, but today we're going to Psalm 103. We've been doing a study about the images of God from the book of Psalms because we want to get it right. We want to know who God is. We've been told that he is a sun and a shield, 
that he's a rock and a fortress, that he's a shepherd, that he's a worm, Psalm 22, who gives his life so that we might live. And now we're going to see him as a forgiving father. This is a wonderful portrayal of the God who lives. Pastor Doug read from Psalm 103, and those early verses remind us of our study last week, these wonderful benefits. Remember this psalm starts out uh, very personal. John Stott said it's like three concentric circles that get larger as you go through the psalm. The first circle is very personal, very small. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, praise his holy name. And then it gets larger. It's the community of faith. In the Old Testament, that's Israel. The New Testament, it's the church. And now you have the pronouns in the plural form, the we's and the us's. But then when you get to the end, it's universal. Let everyone praise him, all the hosts of heaven. And so you see that the praise of God needs to be going on in my heart, in our hearts, in everyone's heart. For he is the king of heaven and the creator of everything that exists. Now, one of the greatest benefits that we derive from the Lord when we know him is this idea of forgiveness. And so that's what the psalmist kind of focuses in on when he gets to verse... Well, let's look at verse 6 first. Because verse 6 is really interesting. It says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. I find it interesting that he describes the benefits that accrue to those who believe as being also positive. Verse 5, we become the satisfied with good things. But notice some of God's children are the oppressed. Verse 6, some are the satisfied. And if you live in Syria, you'd be under the category of verse 6, the oppressed. But in all of this, God's going to vindicate in a righteous way his people. And the blessings outnumber the trials and the challenges. And our focus needs to be on the God who blesses us with these good things and gives us strength in the midst of times of trial. So in verse 7, he focuses on the grace of God. In fact, this section of Scripture kind of answers the question, how great is the grace of God? The psalmist David says in verse 7 that the Lord made known his ways to Moses. That's kind of a reference to character, the nature or essence of God. I know your ways. I know how you operate. I know how you think. God's ways were made known to Moses as well as God's deeds. In a very demonstrable way, God performed miracles, especially in the Exodus, getting his people out of the land of Egypt. So he made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. And you might say, well, the God of the Old Testament, here's my image, he's hard, he's hostile, he's unsympathetic, he's unbending, he loves to make people feel miserable. And he invented ten laws that none of us can keep just to keep us miserable. And just to make us feel guilty. I mean, that's some people talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as though they're totally different. He made way, his, he made known his character to Moses and his ways to the children of Israel. What, what's his character? What's his ways? Look at verse 8. Quotation from Psalm or from Exodus 34. The Lord is compassionate, not unsympathetic. 
By the way, the word compassion means to suffer with someone. And he's gracious, not rude or cruel. And he's slow to anger, not hostile, delighting in damnation and condemnation. He abounds in love. So get it right. That's his character. From which emanates this wonderful grace and mercy and love. His character is compassionate. His, compar his character is loving. And then he gives us kind of three negatives that in essence are positives about the character of God or the grace of God. He will not always accuse. That's one. He will not harbor his anger forever. That is, when there's confession, there's forgiveness, as we'll see in a moment. He doesn't hold an eternal grudge when we try to make things right. And he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, verse 10. So those are the three positives cast in a negative. He doesn't accuse, doesn't hold a grudge, and doesn't treat us like we really deserve. I think one of the best illustrations of that not being treated as we deserve. Kind of an interesting illustration of a businessman who was putting together a promotional brochure, so he had to take a lot of pictures of himself, which he hated to do. He didn't like himself in pictures. And so the pictures came from the photographer, and his secretary was going over the pictures, and I think she wanted to get on his good side, and she said, oh, boss, none of these pictures do you justice. To which he said, I don't want justice, I want mercy. <laughs> When I have a picture taken of me, I don't want it to be really real. I want it to cover up the reality. And isn't it interesting that God doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve? If he did, you and I would merely be a spot on the pew. None of us would be here. But in mercy, he deals with us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. No, he treated Jesus for our sins. That's what's so amazing. The God who was offended is the God who forgives. Infinitely offended, infinitely forgives. That's how great his grace is. Now, the psalmist wants to give us three illustrations in a very positive perspective to emphasize how great the grace of God is. And the first one is in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. This is an immeasurable height. And notice the focus is on God's love, his hesed, his loving kindness, or his charity, which is spoken about in verse 17 as being everlasting. How high are the heavens above the earth? You say, pretty high. Yeah. You can't really calculate it, can you? Now, it's interesting that the astronomers, the scientists, have given us some very amazing facts just to establish the fact that the heavens are really high. They're vast. You think of the fact that light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second, right? That's booking it. And so in a minute, it goes 11 million miles or 660 million miles an hour. And already my mind is just going, wow, I, I can't even think of it. One light year 
equals nearly six trillion miles. So our Milky Way, get this, is 100,000 light years across. By the way, the scientists have this wrong. I'm sure of it. I'm no scientist, but how come it's not 100,010? You say, well, they're guessing. That's my point. It may be 100,000, it may be even more than that, or maybe they're really close. But they don't know. I mean, there's so much they don't know. We know it's big. Here's another picture of the Milky Way, and someone put it this way. If our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the size of North America, our solar system would be the size of a quarter. Wow. And by the way, in this picture, that arrow shows where our solar system is. You see it? Neither do I. The arrow tells us it's supposed to be in that area. Again, that's a good guess, but... It's beyond our comprehension. The nearest galaxy to ours is Andromeda, 2.2 million light years away. Ah. But I say thank you to these astronomers, to these scientists, because what they've established is this. God's grace is immeasurable. Man's sin is great. God's grace is greater. And whatever the situation, no matter how heinous the crime, God can forgive. And he does forgive. That's what the scriptures tell us. Neil Armstrong was coming back to this planet, to earth, on Apollo 11. He said, I remember on our way home, I was suddenly struck that that tiny pea in the distance, that pretty blue circle, that was earth. He said, I put my thumb up and shut one eye and my thumb blotted out planet earth. But I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. Yeah, we feel very, very insignificant and God's grace is very, very huge. The psalmist in Psalm 8 said, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you would even be mindful of him? Who were we that you would even take the slightest thought? And yet the psalm goes on to say God's not only done that, he's raised us above the angels and he's give us, given us significance as the crown of his creation and he gives us redemption through his son. So the heavens are huge and God's love knows no limit. I like that song that we often sing, Chris Tomlin's, indescribable, uncontainable. It says, from the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creations revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings, but all are exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky, and you know them by name. You are an amazing God, all-powerful, untamable. Awestruck, we fall to our knees, and we humbly proclaim, you are an amazing God. 
Notice the second illustration is found in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Notice now this is collective. It's not personal. It's the community of faith. It's the we and the us focus. And here he's talking about an infinite distance, distance, opposite directions. You've got the North and South Pole, but you don't have any place to measure East and West. You just keep going and going and going. And such is the amazing grace of God. How far is it? No one knows. It cannot be measured. And so when God forgives our sin, he puts it away, he removes it, as it says in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so that there would be no hint, no trace, no scent, no memory of our sin forever. Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more, says Jehovah. Aren't those great words? Aren't those gospel words? That's good news. For sinners like us. Man loves to keep a quarrel going and to nurse a grudge and to never forget an offense and even to create a list of wrongs that they've received. The one who has been infinitely wronged, God, chooses never to remember. That is grace. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the third illustration. And this is an illustration of incredible compassion. Verse 13. As the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. We go from the immeasurable now to the intimate. He is the Father of all mercy, and he's the God of all comfort. Jesus put it this way. You have earthly fathers, right? And if you ask them for bread, would your earthly father give you a stone? A few exceptions, okay. <laughs> but most wouldn't. And if you ask for something good for you, is he going give to you, give you something that's bad for you, something poisonous, something that will kill you? No. And then he says, if you are evil, that is, you're a fallen race, depraved and filled with sin, if you corrupt people, know how to be good to your children, don't you think God knows how to be good to his? It's the argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more will God the Father pity you? have compassion on you, suffer with you when you suffer, embrace you with his everlasting arms, love you without limit, shower mercy upon you without measure. That is the image of God. Get it right. Rip out every false notion. I like the Psalter, the Scottish Psalter, who puts it this way in verse, such pity as the Father hath unto his children dear, like pity shows the Lord to such as worship him in fear. You say, wait a minute. Sounds like there's a qualification. Yeah, there is. There was a qualification on every verse. Didn't you notice it? Go back to verse 11. Yes, God's love is as high as the heavens, and it's great for those who fear him. Verse 11, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Our sins us, the antecedent of us, those who fear him. 
verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion on his children. Who are his children? Those who fear him. What is it to fear God? Someone defined it like this. It is humble-hearted reverence for God and his authority. It is showing deference to his person, which leads us to submit to his ways. A Christian is described in the Bible as one who fears God. A non-believer, a non-Christian, is described as one who doesn't fear God. And if I fear God, I've got this humble-hearted devotion to him. And I long to show deference to his person and submission to his ways. Notice verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord is with those who fear him. What is it to fear God? Verse 18, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. So my understanding is that God is this amazing God, the creator of the world, filled with love and compassion and holiness. And because he's a God of justice, he can't just overlook sin, but he loves us. So he sent his son to pay for the penalty of our sin on the cross. That's Jesus. And if I put my faith and trust in him, I am forgiven. And my sins are gone as far as the east is from the west. And the wonderful hesed of love of God overwhelms me. It cannot be measured. And God has pity toward me as he does his children. And I prove to be his child because I fear him and follow him. I worship him and submit to him. This is further, I think, incredible shown to be amazing by the contrast of verse 14. For God knows that we are frail. He formed us. He knows we're made of dust. He says in verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. Now, there are many wonderful qualities to grass. But in this case, the illustration is grass is temporary. It gets cut like a flower. It flourishes. And it may rejuvenate, and it certainly does, but the point he's making is grass is cut and it's gone. Flowers are there and they're gone. Man is here and he's gone. Verse 16, the wind blows and he's gone. As for man, verse 15. As for God, verse 17. He's everlasting. His righteousness is going to go from generation to generation. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Isn't that a great verse? Especially with the ruling of the Supreme Court this week. Isn't this a great verse? I mean, you think about it. How unfortunate, disappointing their decision and yet we shouldn't be shocked because their word is not the final word. There, there is a superior court greater than our Supreme Court, and it's the God whose throne is in heaven. And his word is true, and let everyone else to be found false. And the fluctuating opinions of men cannot overturn the settled decrees of God. 
And simply because man says marriage ought to be changed doesn't mean God is in agreement. God has not changed. Now we need to be careful here. We need to respond with truth and grace. Oh, it would be so easy for us to lash out. But remember this, the people who made this decision, they're not our enemies. The people who support such a decision, they're not our enemies. They're victims of the enemy. Once we were in the darkness, and I don't say that in any righteous, prideful way, but God in his grace has turned on the light in our soul and showed us who he is. He's revealed his word, his truth, and now we know the truth. Titus says, be kind and gracious to those who are still in the darkness and love them. Does not the Bible say, for God so loved the world? What's the world? Is he referring to the dirt, the terra firma that you and I stand on and dig in? No. He's referring to the people who live on the world. And that word means a quality of people who don't love God. Love those who don't love you. This is a chance for the church to stand for truth and grace. And if we are in the minority, and I'm not sure that's true, and if we are among the legally oppressed, remember verse 6, his righteousness is going to shine like the noonday sun, and the oppressed will be vindicated. We shouldn't be surprised that the world is acting like the world. Shocker? It's time for us to act like the church in love. And compassion. I like what our sixth president, John Quincy Adams, said duty is ours, the results are God's. I don't know where our world is going to end up. I don't know if revival is coming soon or things will just wax worse and worse, but this I know verse 19 God is on the throne and he is not surprised. So I'm going to trust him. This is the God who loves me the one with all power and rule. This is the God who died for me in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the God whose love for me cannot be measured, who takes my sins so far away they can never be recovered, and who pities me like a perfect father with love so deep that it's incredible. I've been saying that you cannot measure the love of God, but in a sense you can. For the Bible tells us that God's love can only be measured by the cross. Romans chapter 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates. He displays. He shows. He reveals. He convinces. He proves. A little child will say to their parent or grandparent, I love you this much. Has that ever happened to you? And it just melts your heart. You know, these stubby little arms go out only so far. I love you this much. But there's a limit to that love, the stubby little arms. When God puts out his everlasting arms and says, I love you this much, there is no end to that love. Let that love embrace you as you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Get it right. 
A wrong view of God causes people to go through this world depressed, stressed out, upset and angry. A right view of God on the throne who loves you and is in control ought to give you confidence, hope, and peace. Go forward because you know God. The people who know God shall be strong and do amazing exploits. Daniel chapter 11. Let's pray. Father, help us to know you. We know it is the mark of the little child that their sins are forgiven and they know it. It is the mark of the spiritually strong young men that they are able to overcome the evil one because they know the word of God. But it is the mark of the mature fathers of whom it can be said they know God. May that be true of us today. In Jesus' name, amen.